We're in for a very special treat today. Laura has a word for this congregation, and I think for the body of Christ for the coming year. Laura Duncan, our children's pastor, come right on. I'd like to take a little survey here. How many of you have ever been on a cruise? Okay. We've been on two cruises. We went to Alaska a few years ago, but our very first cruise was up the East Coast and around through around Nova Scotia and back down. I'm going to stay away from that. Okay. Um, and as it happened, our flight left real early in the morning, and we were hungry, but we didn't really get enough to eat or anything to eat. And then it was delayed. And then by the time we flew into Newark, New Jersey, um, our flight was delayed. And then we had to pick up our baggage. And then we had to find the man with the sign that said Carnival Cruise Line. And we got lost. And then we finally found him. And he was just, you know, he was waiting for us. And we got in the van, and we had to drive through New York City. Now, have any of you ever been to New York City? Okay. Traffic on a good day is not good. Traffic on a day when there's a protest parade is worse. So this poor van driver had to figure out how to get all the way around all of these protesters to get us to our ship in New York City. By the time we got there, we were the last ones to board the ship. Now, keep in mind, this is our first cruise. We have no idea what's going on. But they hurry us in, and we, we had these little badges with a number on it and a deck. And we had to go to that deck because they were doing a muster drill. And all I wanted to do was go to my room, go to the buffet, and go sailing. But they made me go on a muster drill, and I had no, I, a mustard drill? I had no idea what they were talking about. Then I found out that there was a reason why they did that. You see, you had a section you had to go to where you are accountable, where they know you are there, you have not fallen overboard. You go to that section, and this alarm will sound to let everybody know. Matter of fact, I believe I have that alarm. Well, this is a function sleeper, you will hear that. Okay? So we were there, we had this muster drill where we had to find out this is the lifeboat you will go to. These are the life jackets you will put on. Practice putting on your life jacket. And I'm like, gosh, all I want is a hamburger. But we put the life jackets on, we listened to it, and you know, not once in my mind did I think this was a necessary drill. I was not thinking of the Titanic. I was thinking about going on my cruise. But this is called a muster drill, and muster means to assemble troops as for battle. 
In the Hebrew, the word muster is to get to gather together or a group that makes inroads into the enemy territory. So while I was praying about this sermon, several weeks ago, the Lord just downloaded this message as I was having my devotions. It just poured. And as I was uh, preparing for this, one word spoke to me, and it was muster. And I'm going, what is muster? And so I looked it up. And then a week later, I came to ch kids' church, and I, uh, Mike Beauchamp, who is, is one of our kids' workers, he and I were talking and praying together before kids' church, and he said the word muster. And all of a sudden, my ears perked up. Whoa, I hadn't heard that word for years, and then he says it. So a few days later, I'm having my devotions, and I'm praying, I'm praying about this sermon. And I felt like the Lord said to turn to Micah 5.1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. Do you know that's the only place in the New American Standard Bible that the word muster is used? That was not a coincidence. To me, that was a confirmation that we are called to muster. We are called to get out of our complacency, out of our, our world, and stand firm and do what God has called us to do. It is time. We are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle. And if we do not muster, if we do not get prepared, we are going down. And this is the time for the body of Christ to muster. It's no time to play around anymore. I'm not having to tell you that. You know what's going on in the world. You have seen it. I felt like the word of God for 2021 is muster. And that's really what we're going to be talking about. It. By the way, in the Bible, it says 17 times. In the New Testament, it says 17 times, be alert. And that is really what muster is about. Be alert. Be aware of what's going on. Be prepared. Mike, when I asked Mike about muster in the military, he said, well, everyone has a job to do. And when muster drill is called, they line up within the place where they're supposed to line up. They do their job. They're, they're accountable. They're trained. We are trained as a member of the body of Christ to do a specific job and we are to be alert and ready for what is to happen. So, most of our lesson today is going to be taken from the book of Acts, chapter 27. And if you want to follow along there, that's fine, but I'm going to read it up here just to summarize it. This is about Paul. Paul the Apostle, who was brash, bold, confident. And he was arrested by the Jews, and they were going to kill him. And he said, uh, wait a minute, I'm half Roman. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go have my case spoken before Caesar. Now, there was a prophetic word that if you go to Rome, you will go in chains and you will be killed. And yet he still wanted to go. Why? 
I have no idea, except that God told him to go. He had to fulfill the destiny God had for him. So Paul knew that he was going to go on this ship, and he knew what his fate was going to be, and still he obeyed. You know, Paul was treated very well by the centurion named Julius, and that's important because Julius later saves his life. He was treated very well, and they started sail toward Rome, and they went to another harbor and got on another ship. Now, let me tell you, there were 276 crew and passenger on a ship. And we're not talking about a cruise ship here. We're talking about a very crude ship. Okay? So, they were transferred to the ship, and Paul had a word from the Lord. He said, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. The harbor was not suitable for wintering, so the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend a winter there. Okay, first of all, I want you to understand, he felt like he heard from God that there was going to be loss of life if they continued. Secondly, just because the majority says to do something does not make it right. I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute. Okay, verse 14, but before very long, a violent wind called Urokilo rushed down from the land. And when the ship was caught in it and could not head up into the wind, we gave up and let ourselves be driven by the wind. And running under the shelter of a small island called Kata, we were able to get the ship's boat under control only with difficulty. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables to undergird the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallow Desertus, they let down the sea anchor and let themselves be driven along the way. The next day, as we were being violently tossed by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo, throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. Have you ever been on a boat and gotten seasick? I, I need Dramamine when I get on a boat. They didn't have Dramamine. Can you imagine 276 people seasick on a boat? Don't want to go there. Okay. So when many had lost their appetites, Paul then stood before them and said, Men, you should have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and thereby spared yourself this damage and loss. Let me just give you some unsolicited advice. Uh, husbands and wives, when you pull the I told you so card, it doesn't go very well. 
just, just a word of caution. Okay, back to verse 23. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Okay, now wait a minute. Didn't he prophesy that there would be loss of life? And now he's saying only the ship is going to be destroyed. There will be. Isn't that contradictory? Yeah. Wouldn't you think that's contradictory? Well, here's the reason why. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong, whom I also serve, came to me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has graciously granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must first run aground on a certain island. You see, I, I, I'm trying to put myself in Paul's place. <clears throat> if I had a visitation by an angel and told me not to be afraid, I think I would believe it. I, I, I think so. I would hope so. And so Paul encouraged the people, hey, I had a visitation from an angel, and this is what the angel said. Believe it. Let's go on. But in the 14th night, when it came, 14 nights, people, 14 nights on a ship with people throwing up everywhere. That's all I could say. So <clears throat> they were being driven about the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, the sailors began to suspect that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, which is about 120 feet. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms, which is about 90 feet. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and prayed for daybreak. I bet you a lot of them had never prayed before. Don't you think? Okay, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense that they were going to lay out anchors for the bow, oh, wait a minute. The ship crew is trying to abandon the ship? I, I, in my mind, I had this, you know, they're kind of sneaking around at night, just going, Let's get in the boat. But Paul caught him. And this is what Paul said to the centurion. Unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. They were the only ones that knew how to take care of the boat. They, only, they were the only ones that knew how to navigate. If they went overboard, everybody would be lost. Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul kept encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken in nothing. 14 days on a ship that is rocking back and forth. They had gotten rid of their cargo because if a ship is weighted down, 
the waves will come in. They needed to float ahead. And so a lot of their food was gone, but they had some bread. And Paul encouraged them, verse 34, to take some food, for this is for your survival. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. Paul led by example. He didn't lead just by words. He led by example. We were 276 people on the ship in all. And when they had eaten enough, ooh, they had enough to eat, they began lightening the ship by throwing the wheat out into the sea. Now when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did notice a bay with a beach, and they resolved to run the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors that let them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and were heading for the beach. But they struck a reef where two seas met and ran the ship aground and the prow stuck firmly and remained immovable while the stern started to break up due to the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, Julius, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from accomplishing their intention and commanded that those who could swim were to jump overboard first and get to land. Satan tried to stop the plans of God by trying to kill Paul multiple times. And God had placed Julius in his life to protect him in this. And the rest were to follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. It's a wonderful story. I'm glad I wasn't on the boat. It's a wonderful story, though. But what does that have to do with 2021? Well, we just left 2020. And it was a shipwreck of a year. You know, we faced... A pandemic, we faced government overreach, we faced political problems, we faced division, we faced discouragement, we faced death and disease. Who wants to repeat that? No. But let me tell you, just because a calendar turned over to 2021 does not mean that our problems are behind us. Matter of fact, I believe the word of the Lord is get ready, get ready, get ready because there is more to come and only those who are ready and prepared for what lies ahead will survive this. And that's the muster call for us today. You know, I sought God earnestly. I prayed, I spent my noon hours for about three weeks fasting and praying and crying out to God about the election, about the turmoil that was going on in this country. I prayed God's will. I know I prayed God's will. I prayed God's word. I cried. I cried out with everything I had. And it didn't turn out the way I prayed. 
And I actually got a little bit irritated with God. Why couldn't you, didn't we pray the right way for the right thing? Why didn't you do it the way I prayed? I mean, I actually told God how he was supposed to do it. It doesn't work that way. And as I was crying out to God with frustration and hurt and everything, the Lord reminded me of something that happened in our life about 30-some years ago. We, we lived in Alito, Texas. Uh, when we moved there, we bought a very small, inexpensive, double-wide mobile home. It was what we could afford. And we had two children. And a little while later, we had our third. And we outgrew our mobile home. And it was in a mobile home park. And we lived in Alito for about five years. And the cry of my heart was, Lord, Lord, please, we don't have enough room. We need a safe house and a safe neighborhood where our children can grow and thrive. Please, God, give us a brick-and-mortar house. I mean, I cried out to God so often for that. Well, finally, after about five years, we, did, we were talking, and, and Joe and I were praying, and we asked God what we should do to get out from the albatross of this mobile home. And we felt like we were supposed to sell it, but no bank would you know, supply the loan for it. So we would have to carry the note. So we advertised it, and this young couple came to us. They looked at the mobile home. They go, yeah, we want this. And I'm going, thank you, Lord. You brought somebody to relieve us from this mobile home. And so literally, I packed up every single thing. We had... Former next-door neighbors who had a mobile home that was empty, they said, you can store your stuff there, and you can stay there until you find a place to live. Every single thing in my house was boxed up and moved next door. And the day before we were to close on this, our lawyer called us. And he said, I strongly urge you, do not go through with this. He said, I did a check on this couple and if you go through with this, they have a history of not paying their rent and destroying the property, and you'll be left holding the bag. And I'm going, everything's packed. God, why would you do it? It felt like he literally slammed the door in my hand. I was so mad at God. You know, God, that I need this house. It's not just a want, it's a need. God, why did you do this? Well, a few weeks later, we came to Granbury and visited some friends. And it was on July 4th. And Joe and the husband was talking together. And, and Buzz said, hey, there's five acres of land not too far from here. I think you ought to move your mobile home on there. I go, no. No, we're established in Alito. We love Alito. We've got friends there. The kids are in school there. No, we're staying in Alito. And Buzz said, well, Joe, let's go over there and look at this land. So Joe and Buzz went over there. And Joe came back. He goes, Laura, 
It's five acres. It's got trees on it. It's got trails. It's got a well. It's everything we need. I go, but no. No, we're not supposed to live in Granbury. No. So it's, we decided, well, let's pray about it some more. And every time we talk, I'd say, no, God wants us in Alito. And so finally, we decided we were at an impasse. We just both needed to hear from God. So we decided to take a Monday to fast and pray. And the idea was we will come together at the end of the day and God will tell us both the same thing because God's not going to tell you one thing and me another. So at the end of the day, we came together and said, okay, Joe, what has God showed you? He said, I really think we're supposed to move to Granbury. I said, no, <laughs> we're not. God showed me we're not. And so the only thing we could come up with is we needed a sign from God. And we include our children in these kinds of decisions. We, we gathered them in. We said, we're going to pray and ask God to show us if we're to move to Granbury or to stay in Alito. <laughs> and so we asked God for a sign. And our sign was we would go walk the land. And if we saw a cottontail rabbit on the land, we would know God wanted us to move there. So we were driving in the car from Alito to Granbury, and our middle child, Andy, was about second grade, didn't have front teeth. And he said, so if it's a dead cottontail, does it count? I said, no. No, it's got to be a live one. So if it's a jackrabbit, does it count? No, it has to be a cottontail rabbit. So we go to the land, we walk around. Joe and the kids are having a blast. They're, they're running all around, they're discovering things. I'm just standing there. Finally, after 20 minutes, I said, Joe, it's been 20 minutes. We have not seen that cottontail rabbit. It's time to go. And at that very moment, a little cottontail rabbit with the biggest cottontail ran between Joe and me. <laughs> the kids were jumping up and down going, God wants us in Granbury. I sat down on the ground and go, God wants us in Granbury. But you see, all I saw was my need right in front of me. That's all I saw. I did not see the future. I did not know that God was going to plant us here, that he was going to have us part of, of starting this church. I didn't know that I was going to be ministering to children. I didn't know that my children would be ministered in this church in a safe place and launched out. I did not see the future. I only saw my own needs and what I wanted at the moment. And what I was trying to bring out here is, Okay, my candidate did not win the election. It did not go the way I had prayed. But God has a different plan. And it's not my plan. It is God's plan. And I don't understand it, but this much I do know, he is more concerned about eternity and the return of Jesus Christ 
and his people getting ready for that than he is about our political system. And there are things that have to happen before Jesus returns, and it's not necessarily going to be fun. But we have to be ready. We have to be ready to face whatever we have to walk through. It's time. It's time to hold on to God with what I call a white knuckle, with everything we have, because if we let go, we are dead. And I'm not talking just physical death. I'm talking spiritual death. We have to hang on. It's time to take inventory of our hearts and our lives. It's time to throw some cargo overboard. Are you ready for that? Okay. So, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are to take inventory and get rid of the junk. And trust me, everybody has junk. And it is time to, it, I saw you point. <laughs> Don't point to your spouse. And point to yourself. <laughs> you know, one of the first things we need to take inventory about is, our, is material things more important to us than God. Do we value and live for stuff? I have a friend who lives for stuff. She has five or six storage containers of furniture and stuff she has not seen in years. And it's holding her back. Now, your stuff could be your car, your house, your clothes, your hobbies, whatever. If it is keeping you from fully following God. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Put God first. Did you know fear is a sin? If you are full of fear, you are not trusting God. I have some relatives that are paralyzed by fear during this COVID time. Now, I believe there is common sense. But I also believe that God does not want us to be in fear, but to trust Him. If you, were, if you are a worrier, if you have to fix things, if you think God needs your help because you worry, get rid of that fear. Okay, are you too busy? Are you too busy to spend time with the Lord? Too busy to spend time with your family? Too busy to spend time with the people of the body of Christ? Too busy to reach out to your neighbor? Figure out what is keeping you, what is more important than eternity? What is more important 
Do an inventory. Lord, what can I let go? What can I do to settle down and spend time with you and to soak in your presence? What do I have to give up? Just get rid of that busyness. Okay. I'm going to bring this one up. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Take inventory. I'm not going to comment on this. There's a list there, and if any of those hit the nail on the head in your life, it is time to come clean and get rid of immorality. Because it says very clearly, Anyone who practices those things will not inherit eternal life. <clears throat> Here's one. Complacency. You know, a lot of times it's very easy woo, to get lulled into being complacent. I don't care. I don't want to do it. I'm tired. Let someone else do it. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. So it doesn't matter what I say or do. No one's going to change, so who cares? Well, here's a scripture to go with that. Revelation 3, 15 through 17. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. God wants People, Jesus has called people that have a fervor for him that will seek him with your whole heart, who will go after him and say, there is nothing in this world that is worth my salvation being lost. There is nothing. He's looking for people who are going to push in and say, God, no matter what, I need you and I want you to cleanse me. I want you to come in and change me. May your fire blow upon those embers. May your fire come out in me that I will have a fervor and a love for you. Let me tell you, this is probably one of the hardest ones to overcome. As a person who has been easily offended, I know. As a person who has walked through unforgiveness, 
I know. If you have been offended, a lot of times what we do is we think it's our right to be angry. It's our right to hold on to that hurt. What did Jesus say? If someone offends you, how many times do you forgive them? Seventy times seven. Which really means don't count. If someone offends you, deal with it. Even if you are right and they are wrong, don't let that offense sit in your life. Because it will affect every aspect of your life. It will affect your decisions. It will affect how you behave toward people. It will affect your relationship with God. And my, my encouragement today is deal with the hurt. Deal with the unforgiveness. Even if you go to someone, and Jesus said, go humbly to someone who has wronged you. Even if you go to them humbly, and they still have not changed their mind. That's their problem, not yours. You need to be set free from unforgiveness because it will cost you in the long run. Do you know someone who's bitter? Unforgiveness. But there's the flip side of that. There's also offenses. You know, if you're one of those straight-talking people that feels they have to tell people how it is no matter what, and you have a trail, a long line of people that you have offended, learn to not cause offense. You can speak the truth in love, but don't go around beating people up with your words and offending them because that is against God's law too. Jesus said, if you go to the altar and with your offering and you realize you have offended someone, go to them in humility and ask for forgiveness. Oh boy. That's a tough one. Years ago, before we built this building, actually when we first started the church, there were, was a family that apparently I, I offended. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what I said or did, but I knew they were offended. And they left. And about three or four years later, in my prayer time, God spoke to my heart and said, you need to ask for forgiveness. And I went, well, I haven't seen them in like three or four years. <laughs> and he said, you need to ask for forgiveness. Well, I don't know what I did wrong. You need to ask for forgiveness. So I, I kind of put that on the shelf. And one day, lo and behold, this family came to church years later. And the Holy Spirit reminded me, you need 
to ask for forgiveness. So during the service, I went back there and I knelt down at their feet. And I said, I'm not sure I remember what all happened, but I know that I hurt and wounded you. Would you please forgive me? And the wife just started bawling. She said, I know I offended you. Would you please forgive me? We hugged. We reconciled. I started back to my seat, and literally, it felt like I was walking on air. It's like this burden had been lifted. Deal with your offenses. Deal with your unforgiveness. And I'm just, I'm just going to throw this one right down here. <clears throat> the last thing. Most, if not all of these things, it's based on pride. We are to humble ourselves before God. We are to humble ourselves and say, Lord, is there anything I have done or said or held on to that has caused harm? Help me to humble myself, not think more highly of myself, not think that I am the one who has all the answers, but may my pride be crucified. So, there are some things I want us to take away from this, not just the boxes, but what I want us to take away from this story in Acts. And the first thing is, stay in the boat. You know, if those sailors had succeeded, they may not have made it to shore, we don't know, but everybody on the ship would have drowned, would have died would have perished. Working in the church for actually literally all my life, because I was a preacher's kid, and we were part of the ministry, <clears throat> when someone leaves because of offenses, it hurts. When someone leaves, they leave a hole that other people have to fill. When someone leaves, they affect other people. It's not just about them. Sometimes they bring other people with them. And my, my plea and cry is, if you're struggling with offenses or anything in the church, don't get off the boat. Stay in the boat. It's imperative. In these last days, it's imperative that we reach the lost. We're not here just for us. You know, there's part of the time I go, Jesus, please come and take me out of here. But it's not time yet. It is time for us to do what we were called to do. It is time for us to reach the lost. It is time for us to love people who are unlovable, who have different political standards than us, who have different ideas about masks and vaccines and government and whatever. It is time to lay those temporal things aside and go after their soul. It is time to move on. Oh. It's imperative 
The next thing is, well, let me go back a minute. Staying in the boat, I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 25, 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 2020 was the, day, the year of isolation. That was the enemy's plan from the start. You keep people apart, they can't encourage you. Don't allow them to go to church. They won't grow. They'll die off and they'll fall away. But I'm telling you, God does not want us to isolate ourselves from each other. He wants us to connect with each other, whether that's having people in your home or coming to church or joining a Bible study or baking something for the neighbor who irritates you and going to them and reaching out, he is calling you to do, go higher than what's going on right here. And he's calling you to reach the lost because the, the time is short. The time is very short. And God is calling us to go out and reach and be Jesus to people. The next thing is, Take care of yourself. You know, this, this has been a very trying time. Take care of your body. Take care of your spirit, your emotions. Take care of yourself. Spend time with God. There is nothing like just soaking in the presence of God to rejuvenate and renew you. The next thing is, Praise God in the middle of a storm. That's probably one of the least things I want to do. Because I want to cower and roll up in a ball and hide. But no, God says, praise me in the middle of the storm. Do you know what that does? That's spiritual warfare. That's saying, it doesn't matter what Satan is going to do to me. I'm going to worship God, nanana boo boo. I'm going to worship God in the middle of all of this because my God is bigger. He is El Elyon. He is stronger than the strong one. He is stronger than any political power. He is stronger than the powers of the heavens and the earth. He is God. And so if you are going through something, worship him. Worship him. Spend time saying you are greater than what I'm going through. So, how did Paul know, besides an angel telling him that they were going to be saved, how did he know that God was going to be faithful to him? Well, let's look at this. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. One night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Like I said, I don't want to travel with Paul. But let me just say this. He knew God was going to save him, not just because of an angel, but because of what he had walked through. He knew that God was faithful, that God had a plan, and that no matter what, God was going to get him to his destination. No matter what. And so, the next thing is hold on to your testimony. Your testimony is both your most powerful weapon and your strongest defense, don't let it go to waste. Has God rescued you from addiction, from divorce, from depression? Has God rescued you from death or illnesses? Hang on to that. Next time you walk through something scary, hang on to it. Well, wait a minute. My God was faithful to bring me through that. He's going to bring me through this. Hang on to it. Hang on to the word of God. Think Think of all the miracles that happened in the Old and the New Testament. Hang on to those things. Hang on to your testimony because that is your strongest defense. I believe that God is giving the final countdown here. I believe that we are seeing prophecy fulfilled. And it's not just a little here and a little there. I feel that it's a snowball that is avalanching. And that we are going to be facing some scary times unless Jesus comes first. But I'm not sure. Don't shoot me. But I'm not sure that we're going to be raptured out of here before all those evil things happen. I hope we are. But there are scriptures that say, kind of sound like maybe we have to go through some stuff. So, here's the deal. Whether we are raptured out of here, or we have to walk through the tribulation, or we die in the process, we all have to stand before God. We all have to give an account of our life. We all have to give that account. And the scripture says, well, let me, let me just throw this picture up there first. Yeah, oh, that was taken 43 plus years ago. <clears throat> you probably don't recognize us there, but anyway. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> uh, months before our wedding, when, when Joe proposed to me, the very next day, I went shopping for a wedding dress. Didn't take me long. Yeah. I went shopping for my wedding dress, and I found the one that I loved, and it fit me. And Now, when I came home, I did not decide to cook spaghetti in my wedding dress. No, I did not decide to play football in my wedding dress. I did not wad my wedding dress up and throw it in the corner of my closet. 
No, I hung my dress up ready for the day I would walk down the aisle to my husband. I hung it up because I wanted to look beautiful for my husband. I wanted to be ready and prepared and well-groomed. So, here's Ephesians. It says, that he may present himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and blameless. We are the church. If you have received Jesus Christ into your life and you have given authority to him and he has worked in you and transformed and you've obeyed him, you are called the bride of Christ. And he's looking for a church that does not have pride, materialism, or fear or immorality, or unforgiveness. He's looking for a bride who is spotless and clean. And I'm here today to tell you it is time to come clean. It is time to get right. This has bothered me a lot. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Believe me, who practice lawlessness. You know, I've often wanted to be able to prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles. What's wrong with that? See, there are fake Christians and there are real Christians. The real ones know Jesus and Jesus knows them. I have, I have six grandchildren. Um, my two oldest, Jack and Henry, they're 11 and 7. Jack is very calm, very personable, and mature for his age, and just a caring kid. And then there's Henry. And uh, Henry is the wild one, but he's the fun one too. But about a year and a half ago, Henry came running into the kitchen to my daughter, and he said, Guess what, Mom? Jack led me in the prayer to receive Jesus in my heart. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Jen said, That's amazing. Let's talk about it. He goes, No, I'm good. And off he ran. <laughs> you know, my concern is there are people who have prayed the prayer but they have not been transformed on the inside. My concern is there are people that when we stand before God, 
we're going to be surprised. And I'm here today, not as a downer, but as an encourager. God wants us to get right with Him. He wants us to get rid of the baggage. He wants us to follow Him and to be transformed. So this morning, I don't know if any of you have felt this burning in your heart or pounding in your chest like, oh my goodness, she's talking to me. How did she know? I don't. But that's the Holy Spirit saying, get right, get right, get right.